You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it certainly is amazing to come into the preaching of God's Word after a song like that. That's a reminder that even a small group of Christians can make a big noise. And that's not because our voices are collectively loud, but because the message that we're singing is loud and it is life-changing to think about the holiness of our God. One of the things that we believe in our church is that as we continue to press into the holiness of our God as revealed in Scripture, by faith in Christ, we realize more and more not only how great He is, but how much we need to change. It's almost like a, a growing angle like this. The more that we recognize His holiness, the more and more and more we realize that we need to become more like him. And the more that we realize we need to become more like him in his holiness, the more that we realize just how big is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we need as we feel that growing difference, is we need the cross to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what we're all about. That's what we're trying to see happen. And that is our joy. One of the reasons that we worship together is certainly to sing praises to our holy God. But another reason that we gather together for worship and to study God's word and to feed upon his truth is because we need to change. We're always seeing new ways in which we need to change. And we are committed to that because we know that God is committed to change us. I was scrolling through Instagram this week and I came across one of those suggested posts that it throws up of a, of a reel and it was a life coach. And this life coach was talking about how important it is to recognize that we need to change and how we all feel this need in different ways that something has to change. We get caught in a rut and life is the same over and over again. It becomes dreary and despairing. And then this life coach said, you need to change something in order for things to change. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, brush your teeth with your left hand. I thought that was amazing. Wake up in the morning and brush your teeth with your left hand because you need something to get the change moving. But what I thought was so amazing is how much that is like the way I often think about my life and how that thought shows how out of touch I am with how much I need to change. Can you imagine? Imagine for a moment if it went like this. A mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. But the people of God persevered. They brushed their teeth with their left hands. Can you imagine what it would be like in the future moment in heaven after all is said and done and there we are with all of the believers of history gathered together rejoicing over the gospel and all that God has done and hearing stories about different eras in church history and the difficulties and persecutions and we who have it so incredibly easy talk to those who have had it or will have it so incredibly hard and we sit down and we say, 
Tell us what that was like. How, how did you make it through? And they say, well, one day we realized we need to brush our teeth with our left hands. And as soon as we did, everything changed. Now, when you put it like that, it sounds as ridiculous as it actually is. Because we have far bigger problems than that. We need far bigger change than that. And the good news of the gospel is, in Christ, we have it. In Christ, we have a shepherd and a king who will never tell you, brush your teeth with your left hand. Because he knows. He knows the change that we need. And he is bringing it. That is the good news that we have this morning. We want to see this morning from this text, Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, in which we will see an incredible shift or hinge in the book of Revelation, one that we have been needing, one that we are feeling our need of, and certainly readers at this time when this book was written, they needed as well. And so this morning, we want to see three life-changing truths about Jesus' people, We need this hope. We need this change. We need this infusion of of grace and power that only comes from Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And we want to see these truths this morning. They are truths that will be true in the end. We're reading a book about the end. We're reading about believers and their king in the end. These truths will be true in the end. But also, these truths are true now. Because they are true of us who are in Christ. We have been saved by his grace through faith in him alone because of his perfect work on the cross. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He continues to work in and through us. He is changing us. He is keeping us. He is satisfying us. And therefore, these truths are true today. But we are forgetful. And so we have an opportunity to be reminded today of three key life-changing truths about what it means to be Jesus' people. And remember, it is the truth that sets you free. So listen and savor the truth about you if you are in Christ, which is true today. First truth this morning that I want you to see from Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, is that Jesus' people then and now are secure. Notice how verse 1 begins, then I looked. I love John's use of senses to bring truth to our understanding. He says, I looked. Inspired by the Holy Spirit who is bringing Difficult truth down to our level in the form of a vision of symbols and difficult realities, he is nevertheless ministering to us, it to us in our experience and in the context of our lives and our senses. So he says, I looked. This right here is the beginning. Of, it's, it's human language to help you grasp the incredible exalted truths that are being delivered, I looked. This is not divine language. 
right? God does not turn his head in a literal way to look at something else. He doesn't take his eyes off of one reality so that he can look at another reality. This is human language. This is what happens among us, mere creatures. And therefore, the word of God is coming down to direct us in these simple human terms, I looked. This is a reminder to us that the book of Revelation is written intentionally, though many parts of it are difficult, to give us or present to us compelling truth that we can understand and live by. That we, like John, can do the same thing, and we must. We must look. I looked, he says, and behold, he's telling anyone who's reading these words, behold, look with me, turn your head from one reality to another, and watch this, what a shift in reality it is. If you've been tracking along in the book of Revelation, you notice that in recent weeks, it has been getting darker and darker and darker as the devil himself, symbolized by the image of a dragon, is standing on the shore, looking out upon the world, and raises up from the sea a beast, an incredible authoritative political figure who will rally the whole world to exclude Christians, to blaspheme God, and to put those believers to death. And then a second beast, a prophet, a religious figure, that comes up from the land. And then this figure is then working with the first beast, two together in this unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts in order to sort of take over the world for a time. It's dark. This will be dark. But the Holy Spirit says in John, to John, through John, to us, look. Behold something. Here is the needed vision of hope that these believers at this time under persecution needed. This is the vision of hope that believers here in this room need now. This is the vision of hope that believers in these days, when they happen and they will, will need. This is the vision of hope. And it's not brushing your teeth with your left hand. It's that Jesus, the King of all creation, stands on Mount Zion, read it. Then I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Notice, notice the shift. Flip back to the very end of verse 13. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Despite all that's going on here, this incredible dark moment, they're reminded as the shift is coming that this beast's number representing his name and character is 666. Remember last week, what did we say about this? We said that what it seems most likely to mean is that this is a figure who cannot win. 666, one less than seven, seven, seven. What would be the ultimate number of perfection? Tripled. Therefore, the kind of name that's being given to this beast, to this figure, in fact, the the unholy trinity that are at work in the world is something more like ever lose, never win. If that's his name, take a John Bunyan allegorical approach to that name. That's his name. Ever lose, never win. But now all of a sudden, something has changed. 
Someone else is on the scene. He is the exact opposite in name. His number is not 666 failure upon failure upon failure. His number is what? His number is 777, victor upon victor upon victor. His name is ever win, never lose. And he is Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion. The lamb was standing on Mount Zion, standing elevated. Notice the difference in the, in the vision, the difference between even the dragon, the devil, and his beasts. They are standing on the land or the sea. He is standing on Mount Zion. It doesn't seem to me that this is actually Mount Zion, that this is a, a symbol. It's a symbol of elevation, of being high above all the rest. That even though they may take over the world and they may delude all of the people of the world who do not have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they will turn against God and turn against his people, that still Jesus will reign over them, that he is sovereign, he is supreme, and that will always, always be true. You see, the elevation of the Lamb. Another interesting distinction. Think about the kind of creatures we've been dealing with in the two beasts and the dragon. A dragon and beasts with heads and horns and terrible, seething hatred and anger and aggression. A beast or a prophet who is, or, or the political figure, who is worshipped because no one can defeat him in battle because he is so raging and strong, contrasted with who is elevated above them. A lamb, that God will defeat them with the most apparently weak, apparently submissive, gentle, and lowly creature on earth, the lamb. And the lamb is exalted, is elevated above the rest. We do this kind of thing in our world. This is, again, that human language of elevation to compare the difference between where one group is and another, or one person and another. Think about the ways that we use elevation in our lives to paint the picture of just how important this is. Why is this a key detail? It's a key detail because even if it is only by six inches, this pulpit is elevated. Some pulpits are elevated much more. In fact, if we could, I suppose we would. We might string it up to the ceiling, though it would be weird to do that and guests wouldn't understand, so we'll leave it down here. But Charles Spurgeon... I've seen pictures of Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. His pulpit was something like 30 feet in the air above all of the people. Why is that? Because it's a picture of the elevation of the word of God. It is a way to communicate the ultimate overseeing authority of the word of God. You and I talk about things that sometimes we say is a, is a problem and we need to undo it in our relationships. And that is called putting people on a pedestal. We lift people up, but we do that as a way of honoring them. They're put on a pedestal because they're honored as precious to us. Sometimes we take the, 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 the goal-winning player, the MVP of the title, and lift that person up above all the rest, communicating victory. All of these are true of the Lamb who is exalted and standing on Mount Zion, he is authoritative, he is honored, he is victorious, and he is not alone. Notice what it says next in verse 1, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. He is not alone. 
Just as we saw in Revelation chapter 7, this number, 144,000, seems to me best understood as symbolic of all the believers in the world, the collective elect that are gathered together under Jesus' perfect care, those who have been converted out of the world and brought to him by faith in his good news. They have heard with faith, they have responded because of grace, and they belong to him, the 144,000. Why would we say that? Again, here's the reminder. We would say that because it seems that when you break down the numbers, you can find other correlations in Scripture. For instance, that there are 12 apostles and there are 12 tribes. And if you put those two together and multiply them, you get 144. If you multiply that by 1,000, you get 144,000. It seems like this is a way of talking about the collective elect from the whole world of all of history. Here is a new scene. I don't think that it's chronological. I think it's another picture shifting from looking at one kind of kingdom to the true kind of kingdom, and there's the lamb exalted above everyone else and all of his elect with him. He's lost not one of them, and there they are purchased from the earth as we read in verse 4. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are celibate. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from mankind as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. This is you. This is me. We are here. We are here with the Lamb standing on Mount Zion in this true kingdom, all because of grace and because of his work on our behalf. We and they are secured. Notice what their security is in. Their security is in the fact that they have his name, and not only his name, but also the name of his father written on their foreheads. They are secured by a double divine name that marks them in some way. Again, I don't think that this is necessarily literal just as the mark of the beast. I don't think it's literal marking or a barcode or something squirted into your body that marks you and identifies you, but it's, it's their allegiance to Christ and his Father. They're marked with this double divine name, and it secures them. This is a glorious truth that we have to remember about the gospel uh, because it has everything to do with what Jesus Christ came to do. Listen to me. Church, listen to this. Jesus did not come to make salvation possible. He did not come to offer salvation as a possibility to the world because if he had, no one would be saved. Because we know that the kind of change we need is not left-handed brushing. The change that we need is real, ultimate heart change. It's the kind of change that turns us from enmity to God to faith in him, and that cannot be done by us. Therefore, salvation is not made possible by Christ. It's not offered as a possibility. If you would just be smart enough and you would be wise enough and you would be fast enough before you die to make the right kinds of decisions and say the right kinds of things and pray the right kinds of prayers, then you'll be saved. No. Jesus Christ came, not leaving this up to anyone else's name but his own. And he secured on his cross salvation for his people. It was done. It was finished. In fact, from the foundation of the world, you could say it was finished. 
because he was guaranteeing the security of his people, and we see it displayed for us in such incredible words. They have his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. How many times have you said that to someone? On your forehead. You've got idiot written all on your forehead. You say that because it's, it's a picture of how obvious it is to everyone around that you are an idiot. But these have the name of the Son and the Father written on their foreheads. It's unmistakable. It cannot be denied. It's easy to see, and it encapsulates everything about them, who they belong to. They are secure. In preparation for this sermon, I was thinking about other pictures in history that have often uh, communicated these truths to me and helped me understand them. One is this thing that happened in the 1800s. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln passed the Homestead Act. This had to do with land out west where pioneers could go and make their, their homestead. In fact, you may have seen a little later in history, the period of the movie, Far and Away with Tom Cruise, when these, all these pioneers go out west in a big race so that they could stake the land. It was the Oklahoma land rush. And when they got out to the parcel of land that they wanted to stake for themselves, they took a flag and they staked it in the ground. And the first person to get there would stake it in the ground, and that land became theirs. It was identified as theirs. It was secured for them. This is just another picture of what Jesus Christ has done for his people by living and dying and rising again. He went out west and he staked his flag in you, in me, so that he would declare our security belonging to him. But again, as I said earlier, this is not just something that happens in time and space. The Bible is so clear. This happens outside of time and space. It happens, in fact, from the foundation of the world. They are marked with the name of his father and his own name from the foundation of the world. Go back just to the previous chapter, Revelation 13, 8. All who live on the earth will worship him. That's the, the dragon or beast. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. We, they, are, have been, will be secure in Christ. That ought to make our hearts sing. That ought to fill our hearts with so much gladness and joy to know that we are secure when everything around you seems insecure. When everything in you feels insecure, the reality is you and I are secure. Therefore, the first use of the text this morning is that we must learn, we must learn, you must learn to rest in the knowledge of your security as Christ's person. You must learn to rest in the knowledge of your security as Christ's person. You must know this. You know, so often I look out from the pulpit and I just wonder, I wonder prayerfully, what is going on out there? What is going on in your head what is going on in your heart? Are you getting this? Are you writing this down? 
It doesn't mean that I would be able to tell on your face that you're getting it. Uh, Sometimes I can't. You are getting it. Sometimes you're not. But I'm asking you to ask yourself, am I getting this? Are you getting this in such a way that you have a, a real intention that when you leave here today, you're going to work at this with God's help? I need to learn to rest in the knowledge that I am secure as Christ's person. Are you writing that down? If you're not, how will you remember it? Do you have a good memory? What's going on in there? Make sure that you're getting this. Don't let it just float by you. Take hold of it. Let's all do this together because it is essential to our Christian lives. And it is essential because you need to know what this rest and security produces for God's people. This is the second truth about them. Jesus' people are secure. Jesus' people are, I'm going to use a funny word, songful. Jesus' people are songful because this kind of security, when it takes, heart, uh, takes hold of a human heart, it produces in you a song, a songfulness, a joyfulness, a happiness, a singing about the truth. Moving on to verse 2, notice another one of the senses. John is using this language again in a different way. And I heard a voice from heaven. He wants us to hear the same voice. I heard a voice from heaven. Now, we know in our church how important hearing is. Hopefully, you know how important hearing is because we talk about it theologically so much. We have a unique perspective on the gospel that we keep unpacking together, and that is that the gospel is an announcement. It's an announcement of good news. Therefore, it is not a list of laws. It is an announcement. It is not something that you do. It is something that you hear. Therefore, our emphasis all the time continues to resonate on the importance of hearing, hearing, hearing with faith. It's important to notice this in the text because this is central to John's experience in the vision and how we understand this important truth about ourselves. I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. So, so capture this. You can imagine it because it's human language and you're humans. Think about what a loud, rushing sound of water is like. What does it say to you? It says to you power. It says overwhelm. It, it captivates everything in your mind and heart. When this rushing sound is going on, if you have ever experienced something like this at a giant waterfall or a river or maybe even in a big crowd that's cheering, try to think about something else in that moment. You can't do it. It takes over your faculties and everything in you is focused on this. That's what he's hearing. He's hearing a voice that no other voices can be heard in the midst of. Like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound, listen to this, of harpists. What do you hear in the voice of the good news? This is an important question. What do you hear exactly when you hear the gospel, 
you actually hear, though you might not think of it this way, hopefully after today you will, you're actually hearing a song. You're actually hearing a divine melody that is playing into your heart and soul. That, that's, how, that's how the gospel comes in with its melodious words and comforts you. That's how it comes in and relaxes you. That's how it comes in and draws you to God. It comes to you and sings you a song. That's why the, the word of God so often talks about Christians as being singing people. It talks about putting a song into our hearts. That song, of course, is the good news of Jesus Christ. But don't miss this important truth. It is a song. It's not an argument. It's not a command. It is a song. What a beautiful picture. Here is the lamb standing on Mount Zion with all of his people. And what is he doing? He is singing a song, a song that has captivated their hearts. Christianity is known for songs of gladness. Listen even to our public reading text this morning again, Psalm 33. I sing for joy in the Lord. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming of the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the, Lord, the word of the Lord is right, and all of his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Notice what has happened here as the harpists are playing their harps. They're singing a new song before the throne. Here, John, in this moment of, of imagery about this, this special kingdom, the true kingdom of Christ and his people, there are harps playing. There are voices singing. He says in verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Harps are playing. I actually looked up some online to learn a little bit more about harp music, even from a scientific perspective that we're talking theologically, which is far more important and telling than, than anything science could say. But, but even science recognizes that among the playing of harps are all of these, these benefits in just the, the ordinary world. In fact, there is this thing called live harp therapy, and it's found success in treating an exhaustive array of maladies, chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, depression, lymphedema, all of these other things, because there's something about this music that is calming and settling. And I just think that that's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does for us. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel is for us. It is what brings us music and it's music to our souls. And it's music that is captivating. Look at verse 3. I'll tell you this again just as a way of recognizing in your Bible some of the little marks that you see. You might have in your version where it says, and they sang a little asterisk next to the letter S. 
that little asterisk is in mine to remind me that when this was translated into English, they recognized that originally in the original language, it was a present tense talking about ongoing singing, 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 but sometimes that doesn't come out right in English, so they change it to a past tense. So that's why mine says, and they sang. But in reality, the real sense of what's going on is they were singing and singing and singing and singing a new song. And notice where they were singing it. Before the throne. And before the four living creatures, the angels, and the elders, the pastors or leaders, and we see all of the people of God there collectively singing. This is an incredible picture of a collective unified song. This is the scene of heaven. Now, it may be hard for us to imagine what heaven will be like. I do think that there will be talking. I do think that we will ask people of different eras in church history, how did it go? I don't think that we'll be singing constantly in the sense of, of that's all that we can do and we can't really like motion to people to try to talk about things while we're singing. I think instead it's just as a way of expressing that this is what heaven is about. It is about a song. It is about a song that comforts your soul. It's about a song that, that gives you relief, that fills you with joy and makes you song full. This is about rejoicing. Now, why are they rejoicing? Why are they singing? In the context, remember, keep the context. Why are they singing? They are singing for many reasons, but one in particular that's already been pointed out for us is because their names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is what they're rejoicing over. They're rejoicing that they have been purchased from the earth. Verse 3, it goes on. They sang the song before the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, and no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000. This is an exclusive song. No one in the world can learn the song except those who have been purchased from the earth. That's why they're singing. That's why they have access to the song. That's why they can hear it, because this purchasing of them has been done by Christ. They belong to him. I want to show you another passage of scripture where the same truth is, is held out at this time to Jesus' disciples as something that they should rejoice over. In fact, it is a truth that should cause more joy in them than even spiritual experiences in the world or abilities that they had. Listen to what he said. This may come back to you. In Luke chapter 10, the 72 all these disciples of Jesus, they returned with joy. They came back really happy from a mission and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You can imagine them. Like they can't believe it. They come back like this was amazing. You'll never believe what Danny did. He stopped this demon from harming this person because the demon like listened. This, it was incredible. And they're so happy. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. But then what does Jesus say? I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow, you can't think of many things more exhilarating and more awesome and incredible than having demons under your control because you've been given authority over them and you're able to help people in such an incredible way. But Jesus says that's not the reason that you should be joyful. Don't come back joyful about that. That's just an experience. That's just a a thing that's happening for a little while. But the thing that's happened forever and will be true forever is that your names are written in my book. If you want to rejoice, rejoice about that. So let's do that. Let's rejoice about that. Let's make that our joy. But that, that is going to be a fight. Second use of our text, how to apply this to your life. You and I must cultivate a life of increasing gladness by knowing that your name is written in heaven because Jesus purchased you with his life, death, and resurrection. This is a fight. You're going to need a second to write that one down. Cultivate a life of increasing gladness by knowing that your name is written in heaven because Jesus purchased you with his life, death, and resurrection. That means that you and I are going to have to be reminding ourselves of that in our own personal quiet moments throughout the day as different things happen. Keep reminding yourself of that. Keep delving into it. Go back to the word of God. Read it again. Memorize it. Unpack it more and more. Do this together. This will be a fight. And listen, this is going to be a fight for everybody. There are some people in here who are not very good at being glad. Sin has just kind of bent you against gladness, and everything is gloomy. You're going to have to fight. You have to fight for this gladness. You have to to inject it in your own soul. As long as remaining sin is there, it will be a fight for you. But it will also be a fight for others. Others are kind of bent toward gladness. You could sort of be glad about any old little thing that happens. You're happy over lunch and taking a shower and all of these things make you happy. You, strangely, probably have an even harder fight because that's not what this is about. This isn't about being glad over trivial things, though that's great. They're gifts from God. Recognize them. This is about intentionally focusing your gladness where it really belongs, just like, the, just like the disciples did. They came back delighting in something really good, and Jesus reminded them, that's not ultimately good, though. Put your joy where it belongs. This will be a fight for everyone. Finally, notice in verse 3 that important word that no one was able to learn the song That just reminds me that this whole process of Christian growth is a process. It's all about learning. It's not something that we just inherently have and do and know. It's something that we do, like we said, with gladness, have to fight for. I think that this signifies growth over time, and it brings us into this final point or truth about Jesus' people, is that in addition to being secure and songful, Jesus' people in this vision, have been sanctified. Now, we know where we are in the story, we are being sanctified. We're being changed over time, and so we see ourselves here as well. 
They sing in the end, we sing in the end, not only because of what was done for us, but they also are singing because of what was done in them. They have been sanctified. Jesus' shepherding love has changed their affections and the entire direction of their hearts. That's what we see as we bring this text to a close. And we should be reminded that this is the work that he is doing in us as well. Like all of us, these people who are standing on Mount Zion, the 144,000 with Jesus the Lamb, exalted and sanctified, these people were born into sin. They were born not following Jesus. They were born following, as sensational as it sounds, the dragon. They're born as children of the devil like every person in the world until they come to Christ. But something amazing has happened. Some big change has happened because they don't follow the dragon anymore. They actually follow Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 4. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are celibate. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, as soon as you read those words, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what I'm thinking. You're thinking about Mary, that Mary had a little lamb, right? She had a little lamb, and it sounds a lot like this, but you know what's weird about it? It's backwards. Mary had a little lamb, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Now, that is true because we have a lamb, and everywhere that we go, he is with us. He lives within us. But that's not the truth of this text. It's actually the opposite. It's that the real defining quality of Jesus' people is that they don't follow the devil anymore. They follow him. And that everywhere the lamb goes, they are sure to follow that's exactly what it says. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They are linked to him. They don't depart from him or steer away from him. He never leaves them behind. They never run ahead. In their sanctified life, they are always right together. They're sanctified. Now, no offense, women, do not take offense when you read this of what this picture shows when it says these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women. This is not a statement about women and their ability to defile other people. This is a picture. Just as we read in the Old Testament of the woman of folly, it's just a, a personification of what it means to follow the world. The difference between these people and the people of the world is that they are not following the world any longer. They follow Jesus the most important and most difficult change has happened to them, and this is a dynamic change of heart that causes them to follow him. But they do. They follow him. Now, there's a couple different ways you can think about following that we use it today. Sometimes when we go on a walk as a family, some of the smaller kids, or maybe even older kids or parents, straggle behind, and they follow but they're just walking. You might be out on a walk on the sidewalk and see someone that you don't know, and it's true. You are following them. You might follow someone on social media. That's true. You're following them. But that's not what this means. This is an entirely different kind of following. This is the kind of following of someone who follows a firefighter out of a burning building, clinging for all life, clinging. 
in a life and death situation, clinging. This is the kind of following that if, if you have a dog, your dog follows you. It doesn't just walk behind you. It follows you. It knows you. It wants to be with you. That's the following that this is true. That's true of these people. This is God's great purpose in purchasing them, is to make them followers and finally to see what he has done with them, why he has done this. It says, these have been purchased from mankind as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Therefore, he has purchased these people. He has purchased you by the blood of Jesus on the cross so that you and I would be first fruits of worship to him. That we would be, to put it another way, in another image, the jewels in his crown. So that we would forever and ever be with him and continue to declare and put on display his goodness and his grace toward us. And that, in fact, is why he then sanctifies us. Sanctifying is is to make sacred. It's, It's polishing. He's polishing us. That's what he's doing in your life when you are disciplined by the word of God or by another Christian in love, when we're wrestling together around the truth and we're, we're trying to, to shave off these ugly parts of our lives so that they can be replaced and filled in with, with God's glory and godliness and righteousness in living. It's because he's polishing you, because you belong to him and because you are his glory. It's getting deeper and deeper. We have to close at some point. We'll close right after this. He's polishing you because you belong to him. Your na- his name is on you. His name is on you. That's why he's polishing you. That's why he's sanctifying you. You drive down the interstate and you'll see the signs down the side of the road. You know, the adopt a highway sign. You see that and it's got the name of a family or a business Those are people that have agreed to adopt that little stretch and to keep it clean. So often you drive right by those signs and you see it, you look at the road, and you realize, hmm, they don't love their name. If they love their name, they would clean up that stretch that belongs to them because it's a reflection upon their name. Well, that's why Jesus is polishing his people. Because they are a reflection upon his name. In fact, his name is on them. So our final application this morning is that we should join in and cooperate with God in continually realigning our view of ourselves as God-glorifying, purchased, and treasured possessions. We've got some long applications today. Write them down. Break them down. Think about them. Pray about them. This is what the Christian life is all about. It always has been about this. It is about learning to sing the song of the gospel as treasured possessions of Christ. And of course, that begins by coming to faith in Christ to begin with. It could be you're here with us this morning as a guest, or you're on the live stream and you are not a Christian today. Today needs to be the day of your conversion. If God is drawing you to himself and he's, he is preaching his song of good news into your heart, you should respond. You should place your trust in him at the first moment you're able to. 
And then you should join a healthy church like ours so that we can walk together and we can continue growing in this incredible truth about the gospel and about Jesus, who is the Lamb, high and exalted and caring for his people. We want to be praying about these things. We want to be thinking about these things. And we want to be acting on these things. This is who we want to be as a church. Let's stand together and pray that God will help us this morning to take these truths into our hearts and bear fruit in us. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would please help us. Help us to recognize the important place in your kingdom that you have placed us as your treasured possession, as those who display your glory, and to see that this is the reason why you continue to sanctify us, because your name is upon us. We belong to you. We reflect you. We are, in a sense, your glory. And so, God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with a song. Make us glad. Make us hopeful. Drive us into the good news more and more and more. Remind us of our security in Christ. We need these truths. And please, God, help us all, every person, to walk away with the truth in hand, using it in our lives. May it not just be written in our journal and closed and set aside until next Sunday. Let's open it up. Father, help us to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.